uh, instructions which Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu gave us, then we are all fundamentally Muslims and we shouldn't use names to divide up ourselves. So the question that needs to be asked, if we are all fundamentally Muslims, where did these names and labels come from? The biggest name that we hear, Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. I think everybody has heard that name. Everybody knows that name. Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The term Jama'ah, it means the congregation, the community. Prophet ﷺ had said, Yadullah al Jama'ah. Allah's hand is over the community. And in other narrations, he talked about those who stray away from the community, they end up in hell. Going off on their own, deviating from the main body of Muslims is a trip to misguidance and ultimately hell. So we are encouraged to be that one ummah. Allah describes us as ummatan wahida, one ummah. وَاَعْتَسِمُوا بِحَبْلِ اللَّهِ جَمِيعًا وَلَا تَفَرَّقُوا Hold on firmly to the rope of Allah and do not split up. So that jama'ah is the basic description of this ummah which became emphasized when a body split off from the main community. Who knows what is the name of that body, that first group that split off from the Ummah? Put your hand up, who? Huh? The Khawarij. The Khawarij. In English, they call, say Kharijites the seceders. This group appeared in the time of which caliph? Huh? Ali. Ali ibn Abi Talib. The fourth caliph. In his time, a body amongst his followers broke off, broke away from the main body of Muslims. Yes, Muslims at that time were engaged in war, military clash between sides, between those who were following Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu anhu, and those who were following Muawiyah, Ibn Abi Sufyan radiallahu anhu. There was a difference which ended up in war, which was not a good thing, 
It was not a good thing. It's not something we praise. But even though they were engaged in fighting with each other, they were not considered to have split off from the Ummah. They were still part of the Ummah. This is the Ummah internal strife amongst the Ummah. So from those who followed Ali, supporters of Ali, his army, we had a group which split off and declared both Ali and Muawiyah to be disbelievers. And they sent assassins to try to kill both of them. They succeeded in assassinating Ali and they failed in assassinating Muawiyah. They stabbed him but they did not. They weren't able to kill him. So that group would split off. And how were they splitting off? They were declaring these leading figures among the ummah as disbelievers. So you could say takfir takfir declaring other Muslims to be disbelievers unjustly this is among the signs of deviation one wants the signs of deviation and they were labeled by Muslims at that time the khawarij now, the sin which was committed by declaring Muawiyah and Ali ibn Abi Talib disbelievers, compounded by killing, trying to kill them, succeeding to kill Ali, this was a great sin. But those who were in that group were not declared by the followers of Ali to be disbelievers. They were looked at as Muslims who had deviated. They didn't declare them to be disbelievers. But the group itself and its leaders, they broke off and declared others to be disbelievers. So to identify, are you with those who have broken off? Or are you with the main body of Muslims? The term jama'ah was used. We hold on to the jama'ah. There was also another group that broke away from the main body of Muslims from the Jama'ah. And this occurred in the first year after the death of Prophet Muhammad wasallam. It, it occurred with those who on one hand refused to pay zakah. 
they refused to pay zakah and they were prepared to attack the main body of Muslims to force them to accept that they didn't have to pay zakah. They looked at zakah not as a religious obligation, which is what it is. They're among those who joined Islam in the last days. So their understanding of Islam was very shallow. They looked at zakah as tribute. In the world, whenever a king conquers a country or a region, the people of that region pay tribute to him. Like taxes, you have to pay to the ruler. When the ruler dies, no more taxes. Until another ruler comes and beats you up and makes you pay taxes again. That's how the world turned in those days. So they were looking at it that way. Muhammad sallallahu he was the head of the, uh, the Muslim nation. They had conquered all of Arabia. People accepted and became Muslims and paid their zakah. But in their mind, it was not paying zakah to Allah. They were paying tribute to Muhammad sallallahu So when he died, they said, ah, okay, no need to pay anymore. Unless somebody can come and force us to pay. So, you all know the story of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, the first caliph, who stemmed the tide. He is the one who stopped them from splitting up Islam and destroying Islam within the first year after the death of Prophet Muhammad, Those struggles that of that time, they were called... Hurub Aridda, or the wars of apostasy, that those who refused to pay zakah, they were treated as disbelievers. Because here they are rejecting one of the five pillars of Islam. Once a person rejects either five times daily salah, they say, There's no salah, no need for salah. That is disbelief in action and word or if they refuse to fast in Ramadan they say there's no need to fast in Ramadan there's no obligation there's a difference between not fasting out of laziness weak faith and denying the obligation of fasting two different things denying the obligation of fasting that now puts you in a state of disbelief Similarly, if somebody were to deny the obligation of Hajj, that would also put you in a category of disbelief. So those were Hurub Ridda. We also have attached to that group those who followed the false prophets and prophetesses of that time. Because after the death of Prophet Muhammad, then we had Musaylama. Al-Kadhab, who claimed openly prophethood and some Muslims followed them. You had Al-Aswad Al-Anasi in Yemen. He also claimed and he had some Muslims who followed them. 
And you had even a female prophetess, Sajah. She had followers from the Tamim tribe. And they broke away from Islam. But the main body of Muslims fought them. They was all included in the wars of apostasy. Right? So these were people who are all breaking away from the Jama'ah. So the Jama'ah distinguishes those who stayed with Islam, which was given by Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu to the first generation, as understood by Abu Bakr, Omar, Uthman, and Ali, the righteous caliphs who the Prophet Sallallahu said, you know, we should follow his sunnah and their sunnah. So those who follow his sunnah and their sunnah, they were called the jama'ah. Those who rejected it, they were called the khawarij or murtaddin or other names, all related to breaking away from the jama'ah. Ahlul sunnah because we said the name that you're familiar with, Ahlul sunnah wal jama'ah. Ahlul sunnah meant those who followed the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the sunnah of the righteous caliphs. Those who were opposed to the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam or the sunnah of the righteous caliphs, they came to be known as the Shia. So this term Ahlul Sunnah was to distinguish between those who considered themselves to be Shia or Shia Ta'ali, this is what originally was term used, those who were uh, partisans or supporters of Ali as opposed to the other righteous caliphs, etc. So when we say we're from Ahlul Sunnah, it means on one hand, we follow the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The question, do the, the Shia follow the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam? This is an issue. In reality, they don't. They follow the practices that they attribute to Ali ibn Abi Talib and his children, Hassan and Hussein, and the descendants of Hussein, uh, some eight descendants, nine descendants, that they claim to be, to make up what they call the 12 Imams. Right? Some follow seven, some follow five. 12 is that's followed by the majority of Shia today in the world, in Iran, Iraq, etc. So, they practice, in practice, look very similar in many of the practices to mainstream Islam. But they don't attribute it from the sunnah of Rasulullah directly as it was conveyed by the Sahaba. Because in their view, the Sahaba became murtaddin. The vast majority of the Sahaba became Murtaddin. They left the religion, according to them. Because Ali was supposed to be the Khalifa after the death of Rasulullah. That's their claim. 
one may have that opinion that's not enough to take you out of Islam but now when you when you build on top of that and say not only was he supposed to be the Khalifa but everyone who didn't accept him as being the Khalifa who became a Khalifa instead of him meaning Abu Bakr Omar Uthman are Murtaddin left Islam then they have gone to various degrees outside of the bounds of Islam. They have broken away from the Jama'ah in this regard. In that they now created a new Sunnah. A Sunnah of the 12 Imams. They based their religion and practice around what they called the Sunnah of the 12 Imams. They say, well, it's the same Sunnah of Rasulullah as conveyed to us by the 12 Imams. We don't trust any of the Sahaba, you know, to convey it to us. We only take what we got from the 12 Imams. However, much of the information which they have taken, you know, has been distorted. They have added many practices which were not recognized by the main body of Muslims. So they have split off from the main body over the issue of the sunnah. Whether it's the sunnah of Rasulullah because once you reject the sahaba, in fact you end up rejecting the Quran and the understanding of the Quran that we have because who conveyed the Quran to us? The sahaba. So attacking them is attacking the Quran. And that's why you will find in their own narrations they claim that the Quran that we have is not the complete Quran. You know? And they speak about Mus'haf Fatima which is supposed to be 500 times bigger than the Mus'haf that we have. Not containing any verses from the Mus'haf that we have. And this will be brought back to the Ummah by the 12th Imam, Imam Mahdi, he will bring it back when he comes. And they have all kinds of stories that they've built up, you know, about what's going to happen, etc., etc. But the bottom line is, they broke away, declaring the mass of Muslims again to be disbelievers. Like the Khawarij, declaring Ali ibn Abi Talib and Muawiyah and those who followed them to be disbelievers, they were doing the same on another basis that we should be following only the 12 Imams. So Ahl Sunnah was to distinguish ourselves from Ahl Shia. And Jama'ah was to distinguish ourselves from the Khawarij and the Murtaddin and all those who split off from mainstream Islam. So that's the purpose of that name, Ahlul Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. But it doesn't replace Muslimun. That's our basic name. This is not replacing, this is just clarifying. Okay, we're all Muslims, but are you a Muslim who's following the Sunnah? Or are you following something else? 
Are you a Muslim who is sticking to the jama'ah or are you splitting off and going off on your own and declaring others to be disbelievers? So this was the purpose of that title or that uh, name, Ahl Sunnah Wal Jama'ah. So now we come to the madhab. Where does the madhab fit in all of this? Madhab comes from the Arabic Dhahaba, which means to go. It is a way of going, a path. And it became a title for those who followed particular scholars, favored particular scholars. Later on, not in the time of the Sahaba or the Tabi'een, Tabi'u Tabi'een, after their time, when in different areas of the Muslim world, certain scholars stood out because of their great skills which Allah had blessed them with, skills in understanding and explanation, etc. They became the most notable scholars of an area. Students gathered around them and studied from them. Those who became the students and stayed with that uh, scholar, the term madhab was used to refer to that school of thought which the scholar taught. So this is the term madhab. But we have to ask ourselves, did Abu Hanifa use this term and tell his students that they were Hanafis? Did Imam Malik do the same? A Shafi? or Ahmed ibn Hanbal, none of them use this terminology to refer to their students and to encourage them to just stay on whatever they taught. In fact, they were noted to say, Abu Hanifa and Imam Shafi both were quoted as saying, إِذَا صَحَّ الْحَدِيثِ فَهُوَ مَذْهَبِي If the hadith the narration from Rasulullah turns out to be authentic, then that is my intended madhab. That is the route that I intended and wanted to follow. So if you find that I have given you a ruling which goes against the authentic statement of Rasulullah then put aside my ruling and follow the authentic statement of Rasulullah That was their approach. Because if we are to give special consideration to any madhab, shouldn't we give consideration to the madhab of Abu Bakr. 
Was there anyone better, greater than he from the Ummah? No. What about the madhab of Umar ibn al-Khattab? Isn't that superior to those that came after? And that of Uthman and Ali. So we have to understand what was the purpose of the madhab. All of what may be called the madhabs from Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah. All of these schools, and there were many more than the four that we spoke of. All of them were trying to follow the same madhab that the righteous caliphs were following. So we never called the madhab of Abu Bakr the Abu Bakr madhab. We never call that. We never use that name. So what then was the madhab of Abu Bakr? If we're going to give a name to it, what should we call it? What was Abu Bakr doing in terms of fiqh, his rulings, his instructions, etc.? What was he doing? He was following the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. That was his madhab. Trying to follow the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And all who came after him did the same. So that is the common madhab which links all of the various schools that all the scholars Abu, uh, Abu Hanifa Shafi Malik and Ahmed ibn Hanbal, all of them were trying to follow as best as they could the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that is what is obligatory on Muslims, which we reiterate, we emphasize in our statement, وَنَّشْهَدُ أَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ the second half of our shahada is our commitment to follow the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Alhamdulillah wa salatu wa salam Rasulullah. So after we have understood the issue of the madhabs in general, the question is, is it wrong to follow a madhab? Should we just say we're going to follow only the madhab of Rasulullah so we will not call ourselves Hanafis or Shafi's or Maliki's or anything else. We just follow the madhab of Rasulullah In concept, that is what is correct in concept however the vast majority of us do not have the knowledge to be able to extract from the Quran and from the Sunnah the madhab of Rasulullah 
So we will be going from here to there and everywhere. We don't understand. We're trying to read this. And this is the reality. We would not be able to find our way. And so, as people of limited knowledge, what do we do? What Allah said for us to do, فَاسْأَلُوا أَهْلَ الذِّكْرِ إِن كُنْتُمْ لَا تَعْلَمُونَ Ask those who know, if you don't know. So now when you ask those who know, in the masjid that we come to, the imam who is known to you, he has studied, he has knowledge, and you ask him questions, you learn from him, etc. You are following at that point his madhab. In your attempt to follow the madhab of Rasulullah, you have to depend on those who have the knowledge to get it to you. So there, is there any harm in following that imam? No. You can't do it yourself. So following him, there's no harm. Now, if he also, in the course of his studying, he had to ask those who knew what he didn't know, and they happened to be from one school of thought, whether it's Hanbali, or Maliki or Shafi'i, he is following them, and so the people say, oh, he's a Shafi'i. But his intent was to try to follow the madhab of Rasulullah So there is no harm to use the scholars that are available to get that information to you. What is the key? The key here is that we are clear as to what the goal is. The madhab is a means to get to the goal. The madhab is not the goal. It is a means. The goal is following Rasulullah wasallam. So it doesn't really matter who your scholars were, if they were reliable scholars, what school they came from, no harm. The only thing that matters is that when authentic information comes to you from another source and you are certain this is authentic information, that you don't reject this information because you want to follow the madhab of your teacher. No. This is where the mistake happens. When people now become fanatical. Whatever my teacher says, I follow. It's not the issue of right and wrong anymore. It's about following my teacher. Now that kind of following belongs only to Rasulullah he is the one that we are supposed to follow like that we follow whatever he said no matter what other people might say etc we follow what he says because he 
was the messenger of Allah so this is the essence of following the madhab we don't call Imam al-Shafi'i a Maliki though he studied under Imam Malik for nearly 20 years but we don't call him a Maliki isn't it? it's well known we don't call Ahmed ibn Hanbal a Shafi'i but he studied under Imam Shafi'i for a number of years also so we have to understand that these names don't have that much weight not weight which is going to split us up and say well no you follow this madhab so I can't pray with you and this happened this happened for maybe almost 500 years people who became fanatical followers of the madhabs no longer prayed behind each other all the way to Mecca around the Kaaba you look at the old pictures from the 20s you know from the 20th century the 1910 1915 old photographs you will see special mihrab special prayer places for each of the the imams of the different schools it's called maqam just as we had maqam ibrahim this is one everybody knows maqam ibrahim but when you look at these old pictures you will see they've written on there maqam hanafi maqam shafi maqam hanbali maqam maliki why because when the time for prayer came around the Kaaba after the Adhan was given time for the Akama then the Imam from the Hanafi school would go and stand under the Maqam Hanafi and all of the Hanafi Hujjaj or people making Umrah would pray behind him when his prayer is over then the Shafi'i Imam would stand under Maqam Shafi'i and all the Shafi'is prayed behind him. And uh, Maliki and uh, Hanbali. So you had four different prayers going on around the Kaaba. That was a calamity. That was a huge tragedy. To the point that even the Hanafi school in that period ruled that it was not permissible for a Hanafi to marry a Shafi'i. So is that what those great scholars intended? Is that what Abu Hanifa wanted? Is that what Imam Malik was establishing? Is that what he was about? No. People created that out of fanaticism, you know, this groupism where people follow one particular person, personality, or organization, 
or tribe or this is part of that tribalist mentality that the Prophet ﷺ had said muntina. give it up let it go because it is rotten whoever calls to nationalism or tribalism or groupism this is not from Islam so the madhabs are means to help us to follow the way of Rasulullah and if the evidence comes to us from any of the schools of thought, scholars, etc., and we are assured that this is more accurate, then that's what we are supposed to be following because that really was the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And as the last point, the Wahhabi madhab. This is what we hear about today. I am labeled, you know, as a Wahhabi uh, terrorist sympathizer. Wahhabi has become synonymous with terrorist or terrorist sympathizer. And reality, of course, is that this term Wahhabi was invented by the British, British colonials. It doesn't even um, ring correctly linguistically because it's attributed to Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. His name was not Muhammad Wahhab. So you can say those who followed Wahhab was a Wahhabi. His name was Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. And they never talk about the Abdul Wahhab madhab. They just say Wahhabi. So Wahhab is one of the names of Allah. The giver who gives abundantly. And as such, all Muslims should be attributing themselves to be a follower of, a lover of Al-Wahhab. So in that sense, we all should be Wahhabis. As to the meaning that is being used today, this is a part of the division of the Ummah, you know, undermining the correct da'wah. Those who are saying, let us go back to following the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Let's go back to practicing Islam as it was known in the early generations. All of these who call to that are now considered to be terrorist sympathizers. And the label for them all is Wahhabi. So... That's what I'm labeled as. But reality is there's no such madhab, there's no Wahhabi madhab. Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab was a Hanbali scholar, teacher, and the 
madhab of Saudi Arabia, official madhab, is the Hanbali madhab. You know? But again, it is not a fanatical approach to it. They are open, they do follow rulings from the other schools where they are found to be more accurate. So that's just uh, putting these names and labels into the correct context. And in the end, we should come back to what Allah said, huwa samakum al-muslimin min qabl. He named you Muslims in the beginning. That's who we are first and foremost. And our responsibility with regards to the deen is to follow Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as best as we can. Barakallahu feekum. And uh, in conclusion, from all of this, what should we take away this evening? What, what lesson, what benefit should we extract from this discussion, this presentation on the madhab? If we don't seek knowledge, then we have no madhab. That's the bottom line. We must be seeking knowledge. The whole idea of madhab came from people seeking knowledge. Seeking to gain knowledge, to understand the deen, to be able to practice it. So it is not just an academic pursuit. It is implementation of this way of life that we know as Islam. To follow and to understand and to practice Islam, we have to seek knowledge. As the Prophet ﷺ told us, Talabul ilmi farida ala kulli Muslim. Seeking knowledge is an obligation on every Muslim. So once we set out on that path seeking knowledge, that path becomes our madhab. And the end of that path is Jannah. As the Prophet ﷺ told us, Man salaka tariqan yaltamisu fi ilman sahlallahu lahu tariqan ilal jannah. Whoever takes a path in which he or she seeks knowledge, Allah will make the path to paradise easy for them. So the end of this whole discussion about the madhab, etc., is getting to Jannah. That is our goal. In order to go there, we have to take a path. That path may be called our individual madhab or the madhab of whoever we followed or whatever, been given different names, but it is a path ultimately to paradise. And that's what we need to leave here with tonight. The madhab has a role in our lives. 
we all need to be on the madhab to Jannah, which was the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu as followed by Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, and Ali, and the scholars which came to, after them, Abu Hanifa, Imam Malik, Shafi, and Ahmed ibn Hanbal, and, and scholars after them and after them till today. We have that madhab still available to us. Alhamdulillah, Allah has protected the madhab of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. By preserving the Quran and the Sunnah. Not only the text, but the understanding of the text. And because of that, Islam will remain clear, pristine, pure until the last day of this world. And I ask Allah to put us on that madhab, to guide us, to follow that madhab, that of Rasulullah closely, and to live our lives according to it, inshallah. Seeking knowledge and obligation made easy. Thought about studying for a long time? Tuition fees keeping you from actually starting? Islamic Online University has led a revolution in online learning. The world's first tuition-free degree, BA in Islamic Studies. Access to the knowledge, any place, anytime, anywhere. It just doesn't get any easier than that. Classes, texts, assignments, completely online. Set your own schedule for the semester. No overseas travel required for the exams. Subjects taught by qualified English-speaking scholars. Weekly live sessions in virtual classrooms. With curricula based on those in El Medina University in Saudi Arabia. El Azhar University in Cairo. And other reputable institutions around the world. Why wait any longer? You pay just a symbolic registration fee and are ready to begin the adventure of higher education. The most diverse student body of any university in the world. 130,000 plus registered students from 217 countries. Log in to the website for more details. www.islamiconlineuniversity.com